you stretch your hands out bless him and say father would you speak to us this morning lord we love hearing from you we want to hear from you today and may these words bring us wisdom may it bring understanding may it bring salvation may it save our souls today may the gospel be preached here in this place and father i pray that you'd anoint Pete, you'd give him the grace that he needs and father May your prophetic spirit just come and rest on him now. Father, let him say everything that you want to say. None of the things that he wants to say himself. Let everything be inspired by you. Let it be scripture to us today. Spirit inspired and spirit breathed over us. In Jesus' name we pray. me a wave if you already thought we'd done the talk bit. No waves. Good stuff. I'm really glad Fortune read out a piece of the Proverbs. I'm not going to be teaching from Proverbs today. I'm going to be teaching from James. But James is a book written by a guy called James. We think probably that this was Jesus's brother. And he was the overseer of the church that was in Jerusalem, actually there. Um, Jesus had another disciple, in fact, two others called James, but we don't think it's them. Um, James tries and does link us with a whole concept of things in the Bible. I'm sorry if I look a bit peppy. I've just been doing some youth camp and it's all been a bit high energy. So I'm both tired and also making wild eye contact with everybody. The whole point of linking it with wisdom is that wisdom for the people who wrote the Bible, wisdom is like this mysterious thing that comes from God and finds a home in an open heart and then starts going to work on us. And hopefully that can start happening when we're very young, but it could start happening at any time. And the book of Proverbs is basically a list of wise sayings that can be called true by wise people. And they include quite normal things. There's stuff like, um, my favorite proverb might be, anyone who gets involved in an argument that's not their own is like somebody grabs a dog by the ears. (laughs) That's the kind of practical wisdom we're talking about. So when James writes his letter, and I know any of you who've ever looked at the Bible's letters before, you know, Philippians and Romans and such, you're used to them being very high theological, abstract things with all sorts of remarkable things to say, most of which still look like the Greek they were originally written in. But James, I find, is eminently practical, and he's very, very serious about laying it on thick about some changes he wants to see in the church. And there was a time in my life where I felt like I was so affected by the things that James was writing that I actually made a little commitment to read James regularly and I I read it every day before I went to sleep for about half a year, a long time ago. And the messages that he's got in there are still just as live, just as practical, just as right as they were 20 centuries ago when he wrote them the first time. So I'm going to read through a bit of chapter three. And the whole chapter is about the tongue and mainly... At church, you'll sometimes hear about speaking in tongues, and if you watch romantic movies, you might hear of other things about tongues. Really, we're talking about speech, normal speech. 
And what James is going to be saying is that how we speak matters a great deal. I'll let him say it because he's better at it than me. Let me start you off with the first couple of verses. Not many people should presume that they are teachers, my brothers and sisters. For you know that those who teach are going to be judged much more severely. We all stumble in many ways, and anyone who doesn't stumble in what they say is a perfect person, able to bridle their whole body. So not many people should try and do what I'm doing right now. It's a risky business, teaching the gospel. I, um, I know those of you who know me well, I, I love to talk and listen. Um, nothing could please me more than hammering out a good conversation about Jesus and the Bible. But I'd like to just give you a bit of assurance about what sort of things I'm going to be saying today. Because I personally maintain a difference between things I'm pretty sure about and even live by. But on a level above that, things I'm absolutely convinced about, which I will stand and live and die for God on. And really, when I'm preaching from the front of the um, church and when I'm teaching in a church setting, I really can only afford to share with you those, that second group. Because I dare not risk a, a maybe in Jesus' name. I have to make sure that everything I say conforms to his pattern. Otherwise, this judgment, this strict judgment that's coming to teachers will be coming down on me more, more, more severely. I really genuinely believe that. Um, if you want a Bible example of what this might look like, um, the Apostle Paul, he writes to a group of people in Rome, and they're having an argument about whether it's right to celebrate certain holy days. And evidently, then as now, some people say, well, we should celebrate and commemorate certain sacred days. Perhaps they were Jewish ones like Passover or Pentecost. Perhaps they were commemorations of Jesus's birth and death like Christmas and Easter. I think maybe nowadays the conversation is still open. But what Paul says, if you want the passage, it's Romans 14 verse 5. He says, one person considers one day as being more sacred and holy than the other, and another person esteems every day as being the same. Each one of you, and this is a direct quote, should be fully convinced in your own mind. Which is to say, if you think that setting certain days aside to celebrate and commemorate certain things, great, very happy. If you think it's better that we not make more of a fuss out of one day or the other and that we should treat every day the same, Paul is like, equally great, no problem. Whatever you do, do it with your whole heart. Be fully convinced in your own approach and go for it. Just try not to kind of cause other people to stumble along the way. So some things within the Christian faith are genuinely like that. And when preachers get up and they make a huge deal out of quite a small thing, I worry for them a little bit, because we do so at our own risk. If you want an example of the second one, you can see John chapter 3. I know you all know John 3, 16, but a little bit further down, he says this great thing in summary. And uh, he says, uh, John 3, 33 says, Whoever receives this testimony about the Son and about judgment, about eternal life, he says, Whoever receives this testimony sets their seal to this, that God is true. 
That means that some things within the Bible and within the testimony of the Bible and within the Christian faith are things that you're supposed to be able to sign your name to, like on a contract or a death certificate or something. It's literally the thing that Jesus is asking of you to believe. They're on his word and on his authority and not on my authority, me, the interpreter. Because some things, I look in the Bible and I think, oh my goodness, there's all sorts of things I could make out of that. But preaching and teaching is supposed to be about restraining the tongue and making sure it's only speaking out the truth of God. Now, I hold my hands up, but there's no way that I've done that every time I've stood up here. Definitely not. And if anyone ever has, James says they're a perfect person. Congratulations to them. Probably don't exist. On the other hand, it is still the goal. So as we go through James and we hear about this tongue taming, that's how I want you to think. That actually there's ways that we let our mouths run away with us a little bit because indulging careless speech is actually kind of fun and it makes you feel kind of good. Give me a grin if you know what that feels like. Right? But this is how James is speaking about this. Let's uh, have a look at verse 3 again up to verse 8. So if we put bits, reins, into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Look at a ship as well. Although they're very large and driven by powerful winds, they're guided by quite a small rudder wherever the pilot directs. In the same way, the tongue is quite a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. How big a forest can be set on fire by such a small spark. And the tongue is a fire, a whole world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among the parts of our bodies, which stains the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, even that by the fire of hell. For every kind of animal and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and is tamed by people, but no human being can hold back the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Gracious me, James, he is not holding back, is he? Um, I'd like to give an indication as to what this means. What James is saying is not that your tongue is so bad and the best thing possible will be to get the guillotine out and get rid of it completely. What he's saying is that this job will never go to sleep. Sometimes we go on Christian courses. There's ones like Alpha Course. Give me a wave if you've done an Alpha Course. Woo! Hands up if you've done a Freedom in Christ course, an Encounter Retreat course. Oh, we've got some course attenders in here. <laughs> Point is, once you've done the Alpha Course, you've done the Alpha Course. And you might like to do it again in the future someday. Might be nice to try and get other people on board as well. But restraining the tongue, you're never finished. It's an every day, every hour, every minute, all the time you're awake kind of a problem. And what James says is this can get you at any moment, even in the pulpit, even when having an emotional conversation with your spouse, even at a time where to do so would embarrass you horrendously, your tongue will still kind of, woo, let's slip or something. And oh my goodness, what consequences from the most careless words. It starts with something I'm going to call subconscious violence. Now, the three levels of consciousness that psychotherapists and things 
I'm waiting for scrutiny here. Mostly talk about is the conscious, where you're really thinking about something, the subconscious, where you've sort of already made the decision, but it could be instinctive and automatic, and then the unconscious, which is where you have no idea what's going on. I think this sort of thing has a sort of subconscious quality to it. That is, if I think a lot about how bad billionaires are and how they should share all their money with people like me and how it's horrible that they're so rich and stuff. Oh. If I indulge all those grotty thoughts, the likelihood of me accidentally saying something actually quite wrong increases. Do you think that might be true? Yeah. I think that's true. And if I hate everyone at church and think so judgmentally about them and I kind of turn my heart towards them and make it all full of muck and slinging and, oh, yeah, I know all about them. They're hiding a secret. Although I'm sure no one would like to find out about this. If I indulge in that sort of thinking, it increases the likelihood that I'm going to start saying things that are going to upset a lot of people. Is that true? I think so. So when James says restrain the tongue, he's not really talking about keeping it still per se. He's saying this is going to happen at any moment. A little spark, a little careless good of gossip or a little accusation or a little judgment will suddenly give way to an absolutely unmanageable situation. I've seen this happen over and over and over in my time as a pastor. In this church, in my family, it happens. And so the job isn't always kind of a job. On the contrary, a worshipful lifestyle pushes out those possibilities where we'll accidentally say something nasty. If I, instead of indulging my head about how rubbish other people are, if I have my focus entirely on God, what that means is my heart's going to be full of things about God. Good things. If I'm worshipping how great and how lovely he is, and my heart's all full of that kind of language, then if somebody asks me a question in the heat of the moment, what might come out of me is that. Another fam favourite proverb for you. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Stuff that you focus on. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And he means that whatever you're invested in most, that's what you're going to be bothered about most. And if for you, work is life, then I bet what comes out of your mouth is mostly about work. If for you, family is your main focus, then I bet you mostly talk about your family. If football is it, then football. If money, then money. If Jesus, probably Jesus. Let's go on to where the tongue starts proud boasting, because I think boasting is another aspect of this. He says, verse 9, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with the same tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes bitter, sorry, blessing and cursing. My dear brothers and sisters, this should not be. Spring water cannot flow both fresh and salt water, neither can fig trees bear olives or grapevines produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You get it, right? We, this is about nature. This is about character, who we actually are. 
And Jesus said this in some frightening terms. If you want to read him on his best, read Matthew chapter 7. He'll say very, very similar things to like this. I think James was probably there listening at the time. But he said, Jesus says, uh, um, you'll know what it is by the fruit that it bears. And if it's a nasty product, a nasty plant, it will bear nasty fruit. But if it's a good one, then it will bear good fruit. And the same with you. Anyone who says they're my disciple, and yet they're full of anger and bitterness and cursing and jealousy and envy and sludge, that's nonsense. Likewise, anyone who says, oh, I'm all about love and peace and joy and stuff in the Holy Ghost, but then actually don't do what I command, it's nonsense. And it's a very scary prospect because it's possibly true that many people learn to do an impression of a Christian without ever actually being one. It's possible to behave in a way that people think you're such and such, but in your heart and in your nature and in your character, the change hasn't happened. I've seen this many, many times. It happens to lots of us. And sometimes this is more about whether or not we really believe the things about us that God has said are true. And I'm not saying that that means, you know, if you're feeling quite on the spot at the moment, I'm not saying that means you're not a Christian necessarily. What I'm saying is the invitation is always open to come to Jesus and say, do I fully believe as you do? do I, is my heart open all the way? Are you living through me? Is your character and your nature becoming one with my character and my nature? Or am I keeping you in quite a small corner of my heart? Something I realized when I was about 19 years old was that I had compartmentalized my life so much that the Jesus bit and the church bit and the good boy bit was only one small corner of my life. And the rest of the time, I was a completely different person. Now, everybody behaves a bit different and speaks a bit different in some other contexts. We all talk differently at grandma's house, perhaps. But for me, this was a real crisis of identity. And what I realized was that I was living two, three, four separate lives. I had separate characters, separate ways of talking. And what happened as I got older and I finished school, suddenly I couldn't keep them all quite so separate. And people would start to be surprised and say, what's that doing in your life? When the rugby team find out I go to church, couldn't believe it. But when the church, someone from the church saw me at the pub, and they couldn't believe what they were seeing. That's what I'm talking about. So when we open our hearts to Jesus and when we accept his invitation to walk as he walks, that begins a process that's going to start taking over your entire life. And that is good news and bad news in a way. It's good news because this is eternal life and life to the fullest and life at its best. Nothing in my whole life is better than the fact that Jesus has come to take residence in my heart. From it has flown all the other good things in my life. But if you're hoping to keep some little secrets from God and make sure you're still very cool in the background, that's, that is bad news. You're not going to be able to manage it. Eventually, he's going to get you. He's going to bring it into the light and say, look, this won't do. Can't have it. When we say Jesus is Lord, that's what we mean. We mean he's Lord of the kingdom of my life and when, what he says goes. And so if he's got a problem with the way I use money or the way I drink or the way I eat or the way I sleep, 
then walking with him and calling him Lord means accepting the invitation to reconsider some of those things in quite a radical way sometimes. Because lots of the things we believe about family and people and work and stuff, lots of it we've borrowed from people who don't even like God. Lots of it we've borrowed from people who don't even believe in God. Lots of the beliefs I really have came to me not from the Bible and not from the Spirit of God and not from the church and not from people who love me, but from people who hate me. This is what judgment is like. If I say to somebody with enough force and in the certain sort of circumstance, I hate you, that may stick with them for the rest of their life. And I'll keep affecting their life long after I've even forgotten they exist. Is that true? So if I say to somebody, you are stupid, this one act of unrestrained action of my tongue may have consequences for them decades in the future. I know that those of us who've been through some ministry for things like RTF or encounter retreats or even Alpha Courses and Freedom in Christ, you know this. The, the tongue is a weapon and it can be used for good or evil. And it's very powerful in both cases. Let's have a look now down to verse 13 and I'll finish on this probably. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By their good conduct, let them show their works in meekness of wisdom. But if you are full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, then don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, let me share with you a vulnerable learning journey I've been on over the last year or two. I have come to believe that there are actually a very, very small, much smaller than I thought, group of people who get up in the morning and really, really want to ruin everybody's day. In my arrogance and in my judgment and in my selfishness, I had mistakenly believed that that group of people was very large. Oh, everyone, always. Why do they constantly? What's wrong with everyone? You know, I had visions of them getting out of bed and sort of brushing their teeth and looking in the mirror and saying to themselves, oh, how can I ruin everyone's life today? That, the people that are actually doing that, it's a really vanishingly small group of people, actually. But the judgment in my heart was an extremely big one. I was able to look at people that God had made and placed here in this world and say to them in my heart, I wish you didn't exist. Lots of people, politicians, economists, celebrities, teachers, people in church, people at home, people in the family, the list goes on and on and on. When my heart gives in to judgments like that, it's worse news for me than to anyone else. I mean, if I've got an enormous opinion about... Elon Musk or Rishi Sunak or anybody, it will affect me a lot to have a nasty judgment about them in my heart, but it won't affect them at all. They'll go to sleep tonight without even hearing about me, right? So 
What James says is, in the same way that we've learned from the Bible that the eyes are like the window into the soul. Have you heard that before? And what you sort of look at constantly, that's going to sort of shape who you are and what you think. This is the same with speech and judgment and your, your willingness to attack somebody verbally or to say something verbally. It's like a, a, a window into who you really are. And if you're finding yourself with lots and lots of harsh things to say, like I have been, then that is a good indication that the Holy Spirit's got some work to do on you and he wants to start that work as soon as you notice. I think that that's the truth of Christianity. It's like, it's, it's not, it doesn't mean that God doesn't want you in his family anymore. What it means is that he wants you on his team because he's got this thing that he's decided to do, which is to save the world and everyone in it who will come. And what he needs on his team are people who are willing to restrain their tongue in matters of judgment and to open their mouths and speak forth goodness, love, kindness, gracious goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of that good stuff. It's not enough for us to just be able to criticize. Oh, that's such a precious lesson. When you criticize someone, you nearly never make it better. Nearly never. I hardly know anyone who's actually made a positive change as a result of being criticized. Just makes you feel worse and digs you in deeper. Like, oh, that person's totally against me. Ugh. But blessing, speaking life, being kind, those things actually change people. Do you know which one the Bible says was meant to lead us to repentance, God's kindness or his anger? Godly sorrow, yeah, the godly sorrow, but it's his kindness that is there to lead us to repentance. It's the fact that he loves us when no one else will. When Jesus came and he made friends with prostitutes and um, dirty blackjack dealers and tax collectors and who people who everyone hated, they changed, right? And when he criticized the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he said, look, I will show you plainly, you are wrong, what did they do? They hated him even more. Nailed him to a piece of wood for good measure. That's what criticism is like. That's why James is taking such a long time over this. Because it's so important that we find ourselves not speaking out the kinds of condemnation and judgment and wrath that are indicating of a heart that needs work. It's so that we'll learn to control our speech and make sure that what flows out of us is the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. The love of God, the peace of God, the kindness of God, the gentleness of God. Look what he says here in verse 16, or 17, sorry. But the wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to being reasoned with. There's a, in the older versions of the Bible, that might say it's easy to be entreated. It's teachable. It's also full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And this is really what the point is. I want a more peaceful world. I hate that there's war and armed conflict going on. And I hate that there's families splitting up everywhere because people can't be kind to each other. I'm nearly mostly sure that... If we were all slightly more kind, we'd be doing more positive good on the world than nearly anything else. 
however, just behaving as if you were kind is not the same as changing in your heart and making sure that you actually have become more kind. And this is what I want to invite us in. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, didn't he? This is where the blessing is. For those who make peace will harvest a crop of righteousness. But you've got to plant it first as well. Look at what he says, verse 18 there. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Sometimes you've got to start changing long before you expect it to make much of a difference. It's like the gardener, you know, he plants the seed in the ground and how long is it until it really becomes the thing that he's after to get the fruit? Sometimes years. And I think that what God is inviting us to do is to look at ourselves a little bit and ask whether there's some seeds of peace that need planting in the good soil of our hearts that can start to grow and change the way we speak about and to certain people. I think that's a promise that he's making through this passage, and I think it's an invitation, really, that he's making for us as a church today. Will you plant seeds of peace about those people who you find it so difficult to talk positively about? Why don't we all take a moment and think who that might be? Who do I find it almost impossible to speak a kind word to or about? Are there family members? Are there colleagues? Are there neighbours? Are there people who you now don't speak to, but whenever anyone mentions their name, you roll your eyes hard and spit? (laughs) Father, I invite you to illuminate our hearts and show us who is it we find so hard to restrain our tongues about to allow you to do that good work. Please give us seeds of peace to plant into our hearts so that they will grow and we can become that peacemaker who you call blessed. So that instead of being a competitor or an aggravator or a belligerent on one side of the argument or the other, that we could stand in the middle for people and unite hands again and welcome people to a place of fellowship and peace. Lord, we don't want to say that evil things are okay and we're not here to pretend that things are fine when in fact they aren't. But I want you to please bring us along with you as you bring peace on earth and goodwill to all people. That you would change our hearts and the way we speak to accomplish this great thing. In Jesus' name, amen.